0: The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 8th chapter. Glory Glory to you, you, O Lord. Then Jesus and his disciples arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he did not live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many times it had seized him, but he was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. And he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? He said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swineherd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, "Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you." So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him, the gospel of the Lord. To you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you know that figure of speech, if true? We'll use it a lot to sort of hedge our bets. You know, basically we're saying, you know, if this is true, wow, right? Maybe we're basing a statement on a rumor, or an early report of something taking place, or maybe even hearsay, something that could be proven false in time. And so just in case the wild rumor that we are spreading turns out to be false later, we can always say, hey, I said it might not be true. Well, if true, this story about Jesus casting demons into pigs who then go on to kill themselves, ruining the livelihoods of pig farmers in a five-mile radius, that would be kind of a game-changer. That would be exhibit A in our argument that we are in the midst of a terrifying spiritual battle and that Jesus is the only person with sufficient power to defeat the demons. It would shed light on the way that demons work that they can actually inhabit human bodies, communicate with people with intelligence and wit. Uh, for example, these demons give themselves the name Legion, which was the name of a Roman uh, you know, co- collection of soldiers, 5,200 soldiers, and, and that they can be removed from human bodies with sufficient authority. I mean, if true, this story is incredibly illuminating about the nature of the world. But pastor, what do you mean if true? Don't we all believe this story to be true? Aren't we all Bible-believing Christians after all? Well, there is, you know, a way to confess something where we say that it is true, and then there's a way to confess something to where it really has a profound uh, influence in the way that we see things that makes a profound difference in our lives. Events like this dramatic exorcism, sure, we might confess it to be true, sort of in the abstract, but, you know, it happened so long ago, these are really extraordinary circumstances. I mean, it really has no bearing on us today. That's usually the best-case scenario with this rather extreme story. Certainly critics will rule it out of hand, uh, citing you know, it as ridiculous, And many Christians even, especially more progressive Christians, might rule it out as simply symbolic or hyperbolic or bucolic. I was on a roll there. I kept trying to think of everything I could say. Anything but literally true. I would say that even most of us, us Bible-believing Christians, so steeped as we are in rationalism and skepticism, Sure, we might say that this story is true, but we don't really believe it. We sort of hold back. Besides, it's one of those stories, you know, it's not super important to to doctrine, you know, it's not mentioned in the Nicene Creed. Uh, So it's interesting, but maybe we can take it or leave it. But if true, if true indeed, if true, this story tells us more about the world probably than any philosopher ever has. It tells us that demons are real and that evil is real. It tells us that we are under spiritual attack. Uh, for there is no reason to think that this guy in this town was anything but a normal guy. Right? He, he, I don't think he was performing seances or satanic worship in his closet, and that invited the demons in, although I would encourage you not to do that for sure. It tells us also, of course, that Jesus is victorious over evil in all of its forms. We have been conditioned in both implicit and explicit ways to believe that our world is utterly rational. Everything is explainable by some form of science or reason. Sin and evil are often said to be, for example, mental health problems. Violence and crime, well they are sociological or economic problems. A collapsing economy, that is a political problem. Basically, there's always someone or something to blame and we can always tweak the systems a little bit more so that we can finally solve all of our problems. When a horrific event happens, we will immediately jump into problem-solving mode employing the tools of sociology, politics, economics, or mental health. Consider a school shooting. Our immediate reaction is, how do we prevent this from ever happening again? And we all have our theories, often with a lot of overlap. The breakdown of the family, a lack of mental health resources, easy access to weapons, inadequate security or police enforcement, bullying, and many more. If we can solve those problems, well, then we can prevent future tragedies. Heck, to be honest, our entire response to September 11th was something like this in spades. Assuming that our politicians were honest and really believed in what they were doing, it was really about engaging entire nations with centuries of their own political and cultural uh, beliefs, their own religious culture, and introducing them, you might say, to uh, Western-style democracy. At great cost of blood and treasure, we sought to fix these underlying conditions, these political, economic, sociological factors, right, that led to terrorism. All right, that, that was a breeding ground to 20 or so men uh, flying planes into buildings. If only the entire Middle East could become Jeffersonian Republicans, then they would see the value of our economic and sociological and uh, e- economic freedom, and they would never again support terrorism. That was our hope. I believed it. Our sky, skyscrapers would be safe again. Meanwhile, we have a Jeffersonian democracy and we are terrorized by homegrown terrorists. Now, don't get me wrong. Politics matters. Economics matters. Social systems matters. Mental health matters. Laws matter. Of course they do. But all the laws and systems in the world cannot overcome sheer evil. And none of the laws and systems in the world would matter if we were good. There's a famous exchange between Milton Friedman and Phil Donahue. Milton Friedman, kind of a famous 20th century economist, Uh, popularized that his book was Free to Choose, had a PBS series that's uh, on Amazon if you wanna watch it. But he really championed as a libertarian, not, not really a Christian, but as a libertarian, you know, economic freedom and liberty and political freedom, capitalism, limited government, that sort of thing. And uh, Phil Donahue actually had quite a good talk show at one point, uh, and he was kind of a famous, uh, kind of left-wing uh, liberal guy. And they're having a communication, and he, Donahue says to Milton Friedman, he says, but but, but they, that is, say, capitalism and systems like that, they seem to not reward virtue, but an ability to manipulate the system. There's some truth to that. People who are, have money figure out ways to manipulate the system. They get more money while other people get more poor. But that's another conversation for another day. But Milton Friedman, ever the free market guy, responds. He says, well, who does reward virtue? The commissars of the Soviet Union? That's how old that clip is, right? Um, American presidents? Is it true that political self, as he says, self-interest is nobler than economic self-interest? Just tell me, where in the world do you find these angels who are going to organize society for us. I don't even trust you to do that. Well, no doubt he was riffing on James Madison's famous quote, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. And as others have later added, but since we're not angels, no government is sufficient. That is sufficient to curb or prevent all evil or even to perfectly punish evil once it has taken place. See, the Gerasenes themselves, they had no solutions for this guy. They, they, they tried everything they could. Finally, they said, we're going to put you in chains. We're going to shackle you. Go out to the tombs. Right? Go, go to where the demons dwell. Literally, go, go to where the evil spirits live. That's where they, that's where they, that was where they lived. This was the last resort to shackle him up, to incarcerate him. And incarceration is often our only solution too. But that is all after the fact, and it's all legal. What if it is true that the world in which we live is simply infested with evil? Evil that will surely be crushed by Jesus Christ when he comes again and flexes his kingdom on the new heavens and the new earth, but does have some degree of free reign now. What if it is true that men can at least be influenced by, if not possessed, by evil spirits? And what if it is true that only Christ can cast out evil? Well, if all of that is true, that is to say, if this story is true, then so much of what we talk about, frankly, is secondary at best That is to say, so much of our news, our politics, our current events are really being considered from the wrong point of view. For the worldview that marks our reality is one that recognizes good and evil. That is the Christian worldview. We see good and evil as the most important way of seeing things. And the good is above the law. The good is above the law, even that men, if if we are good, if we are obedient to God, then the law is of no consequence to us unless the law itself is unjust. But evil is unaccountable to the law. You can have all the laws in the world, won't stop or prevent evil, right? So you tell me, what is ultimately more important, understanding the reality of good and evil or having legal, political, and economic solutions to problems? Hey, they are both important, but which one is indispensable? I hope the answer is obvious. Now, how many of our neighbors believe this view of reality is indispensable? How many Christians even believe that evil is fundamentally our problem and that God's sovereignty and power and might and grace and mercy are the solution? There are many signs of compromise in everything from rational arguments for God's existence to weak views of the scripture's teachings on moral issues to, frankly, lame statements like all paths lead to the same God. In an age where evil is finding softer and softer landing places, such weakness will not do. No, we confess that the problem behind all problems is sin and evil. And yet these twin pillars are not all powerful. No, Jesus conquered them when he was crucified, risen, and ascended. That is what this story points towards, the final completion of victory over the demons. And we should act like Christ has won. Every Christian who claims Christ and every single unbeliever who comes to Christ has a champion in Christ. He casts out evil in you, in your family, in your neighborhood, your community, your city, your state, your country. That is what this story, if true, teaches us. Amen.